0: This paid podcast is a partnership between Slate Studios, American Airlines, British Airways, and Visit Britain.
1: I travel for discovery. I travel because there's still so much to see, to meet different kinds of people. And that's what I love about walking around old cities. That's why I travel. It gives you permission to be curious.
2: From American Airlines, British Airways, and Visit Britain. This is I Travel 4, a series about adventure,
3: Oh my God, whoa, whoa.
2: <laughs> curiosity. How
4: in God's name did you find all these old recipes?
2: And wonder. You know so much about this place, it's amazing. I'm Hattie Pearson, a DJ and radio presenter living and working in Manchester, England. In every episode, we follow an American traveler as they traverse Great Britain. But here's the twist. They didn't plan their own trips. We did. The locals. Let's hear all about it.
4: Oh my God.
0: Hey. Are you excited?
2: I'm so excited.
4: I'm stoked beyond belief and I didn't sleep because I'm so stoked.
2: Today we're following Otis Gray. He's originally from Vermont. He's an audio producer who has a real hunger for travel. In fact, he has his own podcast called Hungry in which he channels his genuine love for food through the stories he tells. So first, we sent him to London. A local named Chelsea had this recommendation for him.
3: Hello, my name's Chelsea. One of my favorite places to go is Borough Market, which is a food market. It's just south of the River Thames. I think Otis will like this place, not only because there's an incredible array of food to try out, it's because it feels incredibly local. I hope he really enjoys it.
4: And with Chelsea's recommendation, I was off to London, armed only with the mantra that I've been living by for the last few years. Food tells a story. I've always been captivated by how a flavor can represent the voice of a person or a place and can tell a whole story without a word being spoken. Now, I was undertaking a quest to discover the flavor of Great Britain. A cuisine I knew nothing about, besides its reputation for being kind of bland and unadventurous. Well, touching down in London, it was clear pretty quick. That that was total rubbish. Borough Market sprawls under the green ironwork of the subway track overhead. It's at the south end of the London Bridge, and the market site itself dates back to the 12th century. This is a place I can get down with. French oysters, dried sausages from Wales, fresh fish, flaky Israeli desserts and Portuguese custard pastries like pastel de nata. Ooh, that is a truffle shop. Croatian food, Mm. Italian cheeses, oh my god, venison burger, and explosively flavorful Ethiopian stir-fried stews. So much good stuff. And everything in between. The whole place smells like smoke and roasted garlic and a battle of mysterious spices that I've never even smelled before.
1: Yeah, it is an adventure. It is an adventure for the senses, for sight, for sound, for taste, for literally everything.
4: This is Chloe Stewart.
1: I'm the founder of Nibs Etc. It's a food startup um, whose mission is to fight food waste by making delicious and nourishing snacks out of ingredients that normally get thrown away.
4: She makes different sweets, like crunchy granola and banana bread, and astoundingly fudgy brownies. And over 40% of the food is made from leftover pulp from the juice bars that are popping up all over the city. People call you the pulp girl?
1: Yeah, the food waste-fighting pulp girl.
4: (laughs) Chloe's mission is to create (laughs) amazing food from leftovers that will make us (laughs) reevaluate what waste is. She's just one of many young progressive voices in this historic city. It's a place full of rich traditions being championed by a new wave of highly talented food enthusiasts. And it is simply overwhelming in its goodness. So, I set out to find the flavor of London. But it's impossible. The city is so diverse, it's so jam-packed with flavors and stories and personalities that there really isn't a quintessential taste. But if I had to pick one, it probably came from an unexpected moment as the rain started coming down on Borough Market. Giving way to a damp, gray London day. I stumbled into a honey shop called From Field and Flower, and I met the owner, Sam Wallace.
3: Swedish uh, creamed wildflower honey, Italian rhododendron English honey. devon flower honey, English honey from London, from the southeast in Greenwich.
4: So Sam was showing me all these different types of honey that she has all raw honey from small farms, where bees are just left to do their thing in their natural surroundings.
3: incredible, it's like wine, basically. Similar kind of idea. Different types of grapes, you get different types of wine. Same with the honey, different flowers, different types of honey. I had
4: never really thought about it like that, or thought of honey as so diverse. But really, honey is a place. And if there was one honey to represent Britain, Sam tells me,
3: It's heather honey.
4: Heather honey. Heather is this beautiful purple shrub that grows really well in Britain's damp, Moorish environment. And the honey that the bees make from it is rich and aromatic. Ooh, wow, that like warms your whole body.
3: Yeah, it does, it's quite rich, it's quite warming. For a lot of people, it's their comfort food. It was what you'd go to you know, go to if you're cold, you're tired, you come home. Some heather honey on a hot buttered piece of toast. Perhaps with a hot toddy hot drink when you've got cold joints is heaven and that's the taste of britain i guess
4: leaving borough market through the london downpour with all my recording gear onto the next destination it was amazing to think the honey i just ate wouldn't taste as good without the rain We'll be right back.
2: And now a word from British Airways. Did you know they fly nonstop from 26 U.S. gateways to London? British Airways can get you where you need to be so you can have that much-needed vacation. Find out more at BA.com.
4: An hour and a half train ride from London, I went from finding the flavor of a city to finding the flavor of the sea. Brighton, a seaside town on Britain's southern coast. It's an old place with settlements dating back to the Romans. Now, a bustling city with a Coney Island style waterfront and little vibrantly colored pink and blue cabanas lining the boardwalk. Families lounging in fold-out chairs on a weekday sipping cold beers and laughing at jokes that I couldn't make out. Walking along the seafront under a big Ferris wheel, the whole place feels like a really good dream.
2: Hi, I'm Holly, and I live in Brighton. One of my favorite places to take friends when they come visiting is the Salt Room restaurant on the seafront. I think Otis will really like it because it's a lovely place with a great atmosphere and delicious food. They change the menu quite regularly depending on
3: what ingredients they can get in, but the food is always delicious. I definitely recommend that you visit there.
4: All right, found it, the Salt Room. Walking through the door at the Salt Room, The smell of burning charcoal hits you in the face as you're battered by the salty breeze from the shore behind you. Inside the restaurant is modern with exposed brick archways and a wide open window terrace looking right out onto the sea. The menu is decadent. Fresh warm bread with caper mayonnaise and a mackerel infused butter. So good. Crispy salt cod fritters in a bed of whipped salmon roe and a creamy squid ink sauce. Simply herb roasted monkfish with caramelized onion, preserved lime, and smoked eggplant. Oh my god. And to finish, a dessert called Taste of the Pier, a carnivalesque arrangement of hibiscus donuts, orange meringue, blackcurrant caramels, and cotton candy, all served on a plank to mimic the boardwalk. Wow. The salt room is run by this guy. Uh, Just tell me what you had for breakfast.
5: A cup of tea and a cigarette. (laughs) Renowned chef Dave Mothersill I'm exec chef at the Salt Room restaurant in Brighton
4: If there's one word to define Dave's cooking, it's
5: local Local greens, local fish, even the charcoal burning on the grill is from British wood For us it's about use the best sort of ingredients we can get But also, you know, the most sustainable as well Local and sustainable have definitely become buzzwords But what
4: that actually looks like is a lot of work It means that Dave's menu completely depends on his everyday conversations with local fishermen. Yeah,
5: literally, I speak to my fisher players more than my wife, you know? Yeah, probably true. Probably true for me as well, to be fair, yes. This
4: is his fish supplier. My name's Kia Foster. I am one of the directors of Brighton New Haven Fish. Just a couple of miles down the road. So in terms of your relationship with Dave, what does your day look like? So my alarm goes up at half past three, get to work at four o'clock in the morning. He helps sort the fish caught from the night before. They do their first deliveries around seven in the morning. After that, it'll be
5: when Dave calls. So Dave will call me about nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, something like that. Then he'll go like, hey Kier, hey Kier. Then he'll say, what's good? What's good is his classic phrase, you know. Flatfish. Flatfish is really good. Do you want it? Like, Absolutely. Bring it in. Dave orders whatever Kier has. Normally gets him about twelve o'clock. What normally happens after that is that Dave forgets something, and then and then has to call me in order to, uh, to to come out to him again.
4: And then Dave puts it on the menu, and it's served fresh to you. It is as local as you can get. Oh, this is so good.
5: Yes. For me now, it's all about the next generation. I've got a young girl who's eight, and you know she cooks a lot at home. I try and get her involved. You know, I try to get her excited about this bit of fish or whatever, just because in years to come that that might not be around. It is definitely a scary thought. Things have to. Be shifted sooner rather than later in terms of how we value food, how food is caught. And, you know, we have to act on it now. And just
4: like that, I was running to my next train, past the Ferris wheel, past the blue and pink cabanas, to discover the flavors of another place that I'd never been.
3: Hi, my name's Dina. I'm from Hall Green, Birmingham. My local recommendation is the Spice Club Indian Cookery School, where you get to learn how to make really delicious Indian food. Otis will have fun because you get a real insight into how to make homestyle Indian food. Monica's a great teacher, and the best bit is you get to sit down and enjoy the feast you've just cooked up.
1: Chart um, actually means to lit. Um, And you can have chaat in India in many different varieties. Today, we're going with a pakora chaat. um, And it basically means the toppings that we put on the pakoras today are going to be so tasty that they're going to make you want to lick your fingers. My name is Monica Haldar, and I run the Spice Club Indian Cookery School.
4: Here in Birmingham, Monica teaches home-style regional Indian cookery in a city that is known for its outstanding Indian food. I'd never been to Birmingham. Now, I was in Monica's kitchen. Your house smells incredible. (laughs) About to learn how to make pakora chaat.
1: Have you ever made pakora chaat before?
4: I cannot say that I
1: have. (laughs) Okay. This is going to be good. Her
4: house smelled like the spice box sitting on her counter, filled with vibrant ochre, turmeric, paprika, and earthy cumin seed.
1: Pakoras are these spiced, crispy, and spicy fritters that are deep-fried. It's a street food dish that's served all over India.
4: It's an easy dish to make. You basically cut up onions, veggies…
1: Add in a little bit of potato.
4: …whatever you've got in your fridge. You mix it up with some chickpea flour and spices like
1: garam masala
4: Crushed coriander seed
1: Sun-dried mango powder chilies, Paprika
4: You make little clumps out of it, then you deep fry it until golden brown I cannot wait to eat this (laughs) And then drizzle with chutneys like spicy tamarind sauce and fresh pomegranate seeds Those look so good Pakora chaat is actually pretty synonymous with monsoon season in India Monica remembers the first time she had them, at the age of eight. She was visiting her grandmother back in India. The streets were flooded, and she and her uncle drove a scooter through the water to a street stall at the end of the road, just to get some fresh, hot, crispy pakora cha.
1: When I see people bite into the pakoras for the first time, it kind of reminds me of how I felt when I first had them.
4: Mm. I could eat this every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> Monica's originally from Manchester, but now she's one of the many Indian cooks that makes Birmingham one of the best food destinations in Great Britain.
1: Birmingham is such a, a large city, and with that comes um, a large, diverse population Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, their love for their food, their spices, their recipes. They've held on to that because that's all they had.
4: She then introduced me to one of the most brilliant inventions I'd ever heard of.
1: In Birmingham, we have these Indian pubs.
4: Indian pubs. That's such a beautiful... Fusion of
1: Massively. And I didn't know these existed until I moved to Birmingham and they serve, you know, ale and beer and lager and all the good stuff. But then on the menu, they have a tandoori menu, seat kebabs and tandoori chicken and lamb chops. And then you have like your cider or your beer, whatever it is that you like. And I think that shows Birmingham has really fused the two cultures together. Indian pubs are the way forward.
4: (laughs) Of course, I went to one on her recommendation, a place called Hen and Chickens, to finish off a day-long marathon of Indian cookery. I indulged in a tall cider, some fresh garlic naan, a lentil curry, and fish pakora with the chili lime chutney. Retreating back to my room, I entered a food coma that would not be forgotten for decades to come. (laughs) Everything hurts. I ate too much. Birmingham, you win and you are delicious.
2: And now for a word from British Airways and American Airlines. Did you know that British Airways and American Airlines offer more flights from the US to the United Kingdom than any other partnership? With their combined flight and fare options, you can mix and match to make sure you get to where you're going at the best price out there.
4: I'm not even much of a city guy. I had some amazing experiences in London, in Brighton, and Birmingham. But I'm from a very rural town in Vermont, and I think the best way to get to know a place is by getting your fingers in the dirt.
3: Hello, my name is Jane. My recommendation for Otis's food journeys is to try Wild Food UK foraging course. It's a really fascinating day out. Everybody knows what it's like to go blackberry picking, but there was actually a much wider range of of stuff available right on my doorstep, and I think available on doorsteps all over the UK. (laughs) It was really cool. That would be my top tip for Otis, to book onto the Wild Food UK foraging course, because it's brilliant. This is where it'll get a little
4: bit wet. This recommendation took me to Hereford. Hereford is a rural town 30 miles east of the Welsh border. It's rolling green hills are the stuff of daydreams. This is like ridiculously idyllic. This is just, what is that, just a field of sheep? Yeah. Hereford is known for its cheeses and its prized Hereford breed of cattle. But I was there looking for something else. I found some. Oh, here we go. These ones. Agaricus
0: campestris, which this is the wild version, basically, of the the mushrooms that
4: you get in the shops. This is Marlow, and he's a forager. He runs a company called Wild Food UK, where he teaches other people how to forage as well. So it's finding food rather than buying food. That's what foraging breaks down to. The night before, I met Marlow at the Hereford train station. We were both exhausted. So we grabbed a pint, and then back to his home in the countryside for another pint, where he and his wife Rachel treated me to a gallery of spirits that they'd infused with forage plants from around the area. And despite some foraged thistle seeds that Marlo gave me the night before to prevent a hangover, the next morning was a struggle. (laughs) Marlowe's antidote, waking up early and walking out into a nearby field to pick mushrooms for breakfast, to make a proper British fry up, the only cure for a proper British hangover. That's what we're looking for. This is a gourmet mushroom called the moussaron, or the fairy ring champignon. Um, You know, chefs use this mushroom, but they pay a fortune for it. Marlowe is a pretty unassuming guy, but he is a master in a field where you need to be. You know, if you're eating a mushroom and you don't know what it is, then you're a
0: fool. That's that's
4: quite simple. And whoever's in charge of naming poisonous mushrooms, they've done a really good job. Destroying angel, panther cap, and death
0: cap, and um, things like the funeral bell and poison pie. And if you were to eat those leaves or those flowers, you'd have uh, quite a painful death. A very pretty plant,
4: though.
1: More, and then we'll go
0: back and eat them.
4: Our fry-up consisted of sautéed field mushrooms. Fresh cherry tomatoes, savory beans, salty bacon with a couple cuts of whole grain buttered toast, and fresh over easy eggs from the two hens rambling around the yard. This meal saved my life. After recovering a little bit, we got in the car to the next foraging spot. Winding through the countryside, we headed towards Ludlow, a gorgeous historic town overlooked by an epic castle. Marlowe slamming on the brakes every once in a while and reversing to look closer at a plant he thought he saw on the side so of the road.
0: Just on the roadside here we've got loads of horseradish, you can see there's about 80 feet of it there. Um, it grows quite a lot on roadsides, you find it more on these sort of verges than you do actually out in the Yeah, yeah it does turn you into a little bit of a child. You know, if you've got little things to find on the way, then your walk becomes a a treasure hunt. And at the end of it, you get really tasty food. It's not survival food. It's porcini mushrooms and chanterelles and, you know, the field mushrooms that we had for breakfast.
4: After a very short time scanning the ground with Marlow, I realized I'll probably never be able to walk around the woods or drive down a country highway again without thinking, I wonder what that plant is. I wonder what's growing under those ferns. I wonder how many flavors I've never experienced that I'm walking right past without even knowing. With a bag full of mushrooms, we called it a day. We headed into town to grab a beer at Ludlow Brewing before I had to get on my train. Ludlow has cobblestone streets, a castle looming over the village, And window glass, where you can see the light ripple off them in a strange way, because they were made by hand over a hundred years ago. We were finishing our beers, and I was anxious to get to the train station. But then we met a guy named Glenn there. Yeah, my name's Glenn. Who said that someone in town had found a few old beer recipes. Original Victorian recipes. Dating back to the 1860s. And they've been brewing these beers exactly how they were made, almost 160 years ago. Oh, spot on. For a pub not far away. A pub called the Blood Bay. It is just like going back in time. In a place that feels like you're stepping back in time, what better flavor to represent it than a 160-year-old beer? My train was leaving, but the Blood Bay was calling. And Marlo and I were going to find it.
0: there you go, the Blood Bay. we found it. Blood Bay. There it is. This is turning into a bit of a pub crawl, Otis. (laughs) Is Is this what you'd intended for the day?
4: We walked through the door into a cramped room with wood floors filled with people all around an old wooden bar. Everything down to the wallpaper had been refurbished to look exactly as it would in the 1800s, even with an old Victorian dining room upstairs. Oh my God. This is a pub? Yeah. Down at the bar, there are three beer taps.
2: Uh, we have an India pale,
1: a stout, and a table beer. And that's it? Yeah, that's it.
4: I love it.
0: About the nicest uh, bit of stout that I've ever tasted. I've got to say, that's really lovely. I like that a lot.
4: We wanted to meet the owner, the one who found all these old recipes. The bartender said he wasn't there. But she said we could find him down the road at his parlor pub. Cheers. Cheers. Tall. <laughs> she gave us a street number, and we went to find it. He's got his light what on. did she say the name of the places that we're looking for right now? Uh, I don't think it's got any
0: signage or any name. It's just a parlor pub, the Ludlow Parlor Pub.
4: She told us we'd know if it was open if the lamp above the door was lit up. That's how you know? Oh, wow. Oh, there you go. Dog hang- the dog hangs well.
0: The dog hangs well. Well, there you go.
4: We opened this big deep violet-colored door. Creaky door, we walked down a little alleyway, and we're in a living room filled with people drinking beer. Wooden chairs, reading lamps, old mahogany shelves with even older books, stuffed pheasants on the mantel, and a parlor in the next room with oil paintings of nobles and Ludlow landscapes on the wall. Behind a small wooden bar tucked in the corner of the room was a man named John. John Saxon,
6: and I have a redundant kitchen and front parlor, which is a uh, parlor pub.
4: So it, it's essentially like I'm a guy who owns a house, and I and I want to make a little extra money on the side, and I, I like beer, and I start making it, and I can sell it out of my living room, essentially. You're correct, yep. Parlor pubs used to be all over Great Britain, and now this is just one of two parlor pubs left in Europe. John opened the pub a few years ago for the same reason he brewed these old beers when he found the recipes. He was curious. I
6: wonder what it'd be like to drink a Victorian beer out of a Victorian glass in a surrounding which would have been you know, what you would have drunk in back in 1860, 1870. I, I think they're quite possibly some of the best beers I've
4: ever drunk in my life. And I've drunk a lot of beer. And I don't know if you heard the name when we came in, but it's called the Dog Hangs Well. Exactly. Back in the day, if locals were caught hunting up on the Royal Hunting Grounds... Then your
6: hunting dog would have been hung from a tree in a small coppice of land up there, which is actually known as Dog Hanging Wood. That's horrible. So why would you name your bar after that?
4: I was going to call it the Hanging Dog, and my mum said it was a bit too sinister. What's crazy is, John says he has regulars who have been coming here for years and just noticed that the ceiling was blue, or just noticed all the portraits on the wall. It's like all this work that he's done restoring the space kind of doesn't even matter, because that's not why they come here come here for the conversation
6: it's the simplicity of it you, you're, not, you're not distracted there are no distractions, there's
4: no TVs there's no music, it's what you hear now, conversation no TVs no music and until he said it, I didn't even notice it's all by his intricate design, design that he hopes you never pay attention to. it's why there are three beer taps up the road at Blood Bay It's why the tables at Dog Hangs Well are pushed close together in one corner of the room, so you have no choice but to sit very close to someone you don't even know. Because it's not about the beer, and it's not about the bar. It's really just about whoever can find the place.
6: And I think by sticking a pub in the back of a house, where you've got to go through a door, down an alleyway, through another door, into a lobby, to then walk into another door, and you don't know who's gonna be in there. That attracts a certain type of person. So the next person that walks in, they've got someone equally as interesting to talk to. There's always someone to talk to here. But the
4: only tourists that would know are the tourists that would speak to a stranger. Exactly. Exactly. I was in Great Britain on a quest for flavor, to taste things and see things that would inevitably change the way I think. It's kind of the reason we all travel at all. And now, I was standing in the old kitchen of an old house, missing yet another train, and drinking ale with a bunch of people that I've never met. Right then, it became pretty clear. It was never really about the flavors. It was about the stories behind them and the people you get to experience those flavors with. Just like John's Pub, it's not about the beer. It's just about whoever walks through that door and the stories that they bring with them. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. Oh, cheers. Okay. cheers. Cheers, gentlemen.
5: Cheers.
4: cheers.
2: I travel for is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with American Airlines, British Airways, and Visit Britain. If hearing about Otis's unexpected bar crawl made you want to travel to Great Britain, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can learn more about their adventures on our website, partners.slate.com/i-travel-for. Music composed by Alexis Quadrado. I'm Hattie Pearson. Thanks so much for listening and please join us next time.